0: Welcome to Don't You Lie to Me. (laughs) Okay, let's go. Don't you lie to me. I'm going to have another drink. Don't you lie to me. Explain that to the kids.
1: Don't you lie to me.
0: Okay, let's hear that story. Let's start interviewing. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Don't You Lie to Me. I'm your host, Jeff Bell, along with our producer, Warren Hicks. With this podcast, we're exploring the visual art scene in North Carolina by bringing you interviews with artists and arts professionals throughout the state. We also want to highlight some current exhibitions that we think you should check out. Today, we're going to talk about the inner workings of local museums. We have Brad Johnson, who is the exhibition designer at the Nasher Museum of Art, We also have Jennifer Dassel, who is the Associate Curator of Contemporary Art at the North Carolina Museum of Art, and she also is the host of the podcast Art Curious. You can find links to the North Carolina Museum of Art and the Nasher Museum of Art, as well as the Art Curious podcast, on our website, DontYouLieToMe.com. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Our Twitter feed is at D-Y-L-T-M-N-C. Enjoy. (laughs) the following podcast contains adult language Oh, i like that previously on don't you lie to me all right let's do this <laughs> <laughs> have we started recording work? we'll just start with like a hey the hey there or, the, the, hey there
1: is that too weird no yeah oh yeah no yes. it is
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, it, well uh who who uh
1: I can't really quite forensically tell how she died.
0: (laughs) Forensically?
2: (laughs)
1: Yeah, I can't quite suss it out.
0: A lot of pallet jacking going on. And that takes place in my living room every night of the week. (laughs) 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 I...
3: I have to be an artist. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry.
0: And uh, <laughs> So I... I... It's, it's not... not, not... Well, maybe. Oh, mm. I've always heard people say...
3: Shit. No way. Oh,
0: yes. Hello, hello. Do, do you... Um, uh, um, but uh, like, I'll, uh, um, I was probably just going to start peeing my pants or something. Mm-hmm. That's my dream. All right. Uh, it, and it's now I am Jen or Jennifer.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, people call me Digweed, an amazing artist, Susan, Jeff, or Jeffrey, and I'm okay with whatever.
1: I know it's kind of weird. <laughs> sure.
0: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> She won an award for being the most Jesus-like in summer camp. Close. Most Christ-like. Oh, well, that's even yeah, better. Yeah. Uh. Okay, we're here with Jennifer Dassel, who is multi-talented. She, of course, is the Associate Curator of Contemporary Art at North Carolina Museum of Art. And she also has a podcast called Art Curious. Which I love because I love art history, but also these sort of conspiracy theories and all of these other things and and we'll get into that. So if I'm not mistaken, you grew up in California. Did I, I make did. that up?
1: No, that is absolutely correct. I'm originally from Northern California, from the Sacramento area, and then um I've lived kind of up and down the state a right. little bit. The last place I lived was LA for a few years before moving east.
0: Right. Yeah. And where'd you go to school?
1: I did my undergraduate at University of California, Davis, so it's kind of not too far outside of my hometown. And then I went to um, Notre Dame for my master's degree, so I moved east a little bit, and then I did some Ph.D. coursework at Penn State University before moving to North Carolina.
0: So do do you like football?
1: That's what everybody <laughs> asks. I think football is fine. Yeah. Um, I'm actually more of a basketball person if really? I have to choose. Uh-huh. But uh, it is really funny going to two particular really huge sports schools right. and just kind of being very casual about sports is right. really funny. But um, yeah, yeah, good experience.
0: So when I run into or when I meet curators, I always, uh, you know, you can kind of get a sense of, well, this person I can see why they're a contemporary curator or I can see why they're into this art history Uh, with you. You deal with contemporary art, things that are going on right now. But in the podcast, obviously, you deal with a lot of things from the past. And I can really see this um, a very serious love and interest of things in the past. Was that a difficult choice to make uh, as to what would be the focus of of your curation?
1: Basically, it started when I was um, doing my PhD coursework at Penn State, and my advisor said, okay, you have to have one major area of interest, and then you have to have two minors, So, which is very interesting to think of like a minor for a PhD, and so I said, well... At the time, my focus was 18th and 19th century French painting, especially early 19th century, so definitely prior to the Impressionists. And I, so I said, OK, let's choose Renaissance just because that's another fun period to choose. <laughs> I like it. And I really was kind of struggling with where to go with my second one. And so my advisor basically said, you should try contemporary. At the time, I'd only taken a handful of contemporary art classes, and I liked it, but I didn't really – I don't know that I really had a very good teacher who helped me really get into it and understand it. And so once I sort of jumped in and said, okay, great, I will start studying contemporary art. Why not? Um, I just ended up landing into classes with a bunch of great teachers who really made me understand it. And very slowly I started noticing that – my perception of art and art history in general started changing. Yeah. And even now, it's really funny. I'll go into a museum, and I will walk into more historical art, and I find this little voice in my head saying, oh, everything looks so old. <laughs> it's so bizarre. Um, and, and so it really happened just very organically and kind of surprisingly. Wow. And I really love what contemporary art can show us about what it's like to live today, the kind of things that we are dealing with on an everyday basis, the topics, the problems, the challenges. And I think there's something so bright and energetic that, for me, historical art is still wonderful, but it doesn't have that same kind of spirit.
0: Sure. I think I would be scared uh, if I was a contemporary curator, because when we're looking back, when you mentioned the Renaissance we've got a pretty good idea of the major figures of that period. And, and, and if you want to do an exhibition or you want to write about it, you can kind of say, these are the most important people in that time period. Whereas in contemporary art, you have to kind of decide and, and, and what resonates with you, you have to kind of say, this is important right now, this person, what they're doing or or this uh, idea is, is really important right now. How do you, come to that conclusion? Is it an intuitive thing? Or, or how does that even work?
1: That's such a good question, too. You're really good at this. Um, I think it's a little bit of both. It's a process where talking a little bit about the podcast, and how I'm kind of constantly in the library, I'm constantly in the library, even more for my job, even if I'm just opening a periodical and looking at the pictures. It's just trying to stay as current as possible. And that's almost impossible to do Sure, with contemporary art. I feel like um, it's changing all the time. I'm never up to date the way I want to be but I'm looking at websites, I'm looking at art galleries, I'm trying to get up to New York a couple times a year if I'm lucky to see what's going on there. For me, I have to rely on, I think, help from other people. I have friends who live in New York who can tell me that they saw a great show. I right. um, contact galleries and say, what's going on? What artists are you looking at right now? Right. I go to other institutions and museums and I try to keep my eyes open for things that they think is interesting. Right. And then I come back here and I just sort of mix it all up in my head and see what sticks for me personally. Because right. I think also the other thing about being a contemporary curator is that it's all... A calculated risk you don't know what's going to be considered the big thing right you don't know what's actually gonna stick and you don't know what's actually going to be worthy of a museum collection in the long run it's such a hard call right so it really is a gamble um you try to do the best that you can <laughs> sure. and there's so much that you want to show and it's just impossible to show it all um right. it's a struggle but it's definitely as i always tell everybody i am never bored right I'm always excited and always interested.
0: So is there anything right now uh, that you'd like to talk about that's at the North Carolina Museum of Art that we should see? Is there a little pocket of something or a...
1: That's a good question, too. Um, Right now, I did a little a small photography exhibition that's part of our permanent collection. And it's called human nature with a slash in the middle human slash nature. Mm -hmm. And it was actually an idea that was uh, brought up by one of our interns that we had at the museum. And she wanted to talk about the way that human bodies reflect the environment. And so we started looking at photos from our permanent collection and seeing these little interesting dialogues between them the way that a dancer would pose so that it looked like she was a tree blowing in a wind or um, a photo of someone's skirt blowing off to the side so it looked like a rock formation Uh, so she came up with this very cool idea and a fun checklist and we worked on that together did a little collaboration and that has been so fun the thing that I also like about that show is that there's I always think there's not one way ever to look at a work of art. And I came up with these little pairings or even sort of triplets of works that I thought were in conversation with one another. And every time I go in there, I think of a new one. Right. Or I see a kid who's in there with you know, his or her parents, and he says, oh, that one reminds me of the one over here on the other wall. Right. And I love seeing people making different connections than the one I come up with. That, to me, is so fulfilling. Right.
0: it's so important how or particularly to get a point across or or an idea it's so important how those decisions are made uh, and how like you said an artwork can change you can see uh, particularly if you're at an institution that has a collection that that works find their way into different exhibitions really see a work in a totally different way based on the context what it's surrounded by what like like if you have a topic like what you talked about if that if that topic could be very different from the way that work was shown before so that's uh that's always sort of fascinating
1: I think it's a lot of fun and for me I that's something that I really enjoy is I want to hear other people's opinions I never want to be in a situation where I say this artwork is about x and that's it. I always want somebody to say, well, to me, it reminds me of this, because it's fun to come up with your own idea and what speaks to you based on your life experiences or how you're feeling that day. Yeah, I love that.
0: Right. One thing that I I think about a lot as an artist, as a person that makes things, so often it's difficult to verbalize what we're doing, uh, how we're doing things. And so often you, it's amazing that what you find from someone else when they're talking, when a curator says something about your work or someone uh, just someone totally different says something about a work. How is that for you to um, to see a work of art and to if, when you're putting it in an exhibition to speak about it, even though it may not be what the artist is talking about? Or maybe the artist hasn't yet even figured out that that's what it could be about.
1: Yeah. Oh, gosh. I think it's important to share your opinion, um, or not necessarily opinion, but your interpretation with an audience. Um, Especially with contemporary art, sometimes I find that people have a hard time getting into it. They need a little entree. And so I like to give a little bit of something, even if it's just my own personal thought. Mm -hmm. Um, But my favorite thing about being a contemporary curator is the interaction with the artist. Sure. That's the only area of art that you can have that. And for me, that's worth everything is being able to say what do you think this is about how are you feeling what made you want to make this what is your inspiration because as much as it would be very cool to do so we can't talk to Michelangelo and say hey what was going on (laughs) why did you do it this way and you know To me, that's so important. And um, when I'm giving lectures at the museum or talking to docents, I always like to give them a little cheat sheet with like a block quote or a link to an artist's web page or just their their statement. I want them to get a sense of what the artist has to say for him or herself. Yeah. Yeah.
0: No, it, it's it's true. And part of it, I think, is just uh, the way we are as a society. People come in expecting not to understand contemporary art if they're not familiar with it. And yeah. so often uh, when I'm at work and I'm uh, giving a tour or talking about artwork, you see that them like opening up like well you know i i can make i can enjoy this i can get get something from this and and so much of it as i said i think is just this preconceived notion that that the the general public may feel like they're not allowed uh, to come in and experience these things when they are they they're personal things they're they're things we can all um get something from
1: it is so true I think the other thing I run into a lot is also there's that general sense of my kid could do that I think there's more of that with different types of art but especially abstraction I think a lot of people just go like oh that looks so simple but once you get them into conversation and maybe you talk about how it was created or maybe some of the thoughts possibly what it could represent or symbolize I think that's exactly what you're talking about that little opening up you just sometimes need a little help
0: yeah so when you're when you're curating a show how does that sort of begin what's the sort of impetus I I guess sometimes that's obviously very different true but in general if you had to sort of generalize that is it is it an idea is it a do you start with an artist? How does that work?
1: I think it really, like you said, it depends on the show. Sometimes it starts with an artist or even just one particular artwork by one artist. I'll say this, this is it right here. There's something special going on here. I want to do more of that. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it is a thematic thing. Um, and sometimes it also is permanent collection based. Sure. A lot of our photography collections start as a permanent collection looking, I guess. Um, so, yeah, it really depends on the show. It's a good question, though.
0: So are you working on anything right now that you can talk about?
1: Let's see. Oh, gosh. We're in kind of a really interesting phase right now because we are doing some reinstallations of the museum. So places where we would normally have work on view are going to be going dark for a few months. Like right now, we're in the process of reinstalling our African galleries. Right. And also our modern and contemporary galleries are starting to be deinstalled, and those are going to be... Um, switched around totally different in the next year, I think is the whole schedule of it. So uh, it's kind of an interesting mix up of things going on right now. And far as far as exhibitions are going, I'm trying to think about what's even happening that's smaller scale. This is the thing that everybody uh, always thinks is funny and kind of surprising about being in a museum is that dependent on the size of the museum, um, we're looking at two to three years out planning shows all the time. So uh, a show that could be opening up next month is not at all where my mind is. I'm thinking about a show that's opening in 2019. So it's really funny. I'm working on a bunch of things, but we have a couple large-scale exhibitions coming up for 2018 and a fashion exhibition coming up for the end of 2017 that's going to be really interesting. We've wow. never done a fashion show wow. at the museum, so I'm going to be thrown into the fashion world. Don't know anything about it. It'll be exciting. <laughs> um, and then I'm working on a show for 2019 of a South African artist named Vimbota, who's a sculptor. Mm -hmm. Um, and then of course I'm always working on North Carolina shows too always Uh, we just moved for um, people who haven't been to the museum in a while we just have switched some galleries in the East Building so that Uh, where our photography exhibitions used to be, have all been moved downstairs. And where our North Carolina gallery is now is going to be transformed into the new African gallery space. Mm -hmm. So right now things are very much in flux as to where we will put North Carolina shows. We have a couple different locations. So um, it's fun and also a little stressful to kind of get my head around visualizing the new spaces and um, when those spaces will be open.
0: It's pretty funny how... um how it takes a while to get used to a space Uh, you know if you're if you're used to to putting together a show in a certain space uh or you go to a new space it really takes a while to learn hey this is this is kind of how this should be i mean it's really a learning experience
1: definitely and um i don't want to speak ill of the architecture but the um for people who've been to the east building It's such a funky space. Mm -hmm. It's a great space and the building has like these amazing bones. It's a really interesting, um, brutalist work of architecture. (laughs) But also there's some weird galleries where the walls are at strange angles and there's these little niches that are very uh, interesting and sometimes challenging as far as programming is concerned. So it really is funny once you sort of get your mind wrapped around, okay, I think I know how this space is going to work. And then we move it all and change it again. So it really is yeah. totally interesting. Again, I'm never bored.
0: So you talked about um, you know, showing North Carolina artists. How difficult is it to, to get out there on top of everything else that you do and, and kind of see what's going on and, and connect with the, the artists in the state?
1: It is hard, and I always want to do more, always, 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 because I think it's a priority for me in particular, just because um, looking at contemporary art, I want to show that it's a global thing. We're showing work that's being created on the opposite side of the world, but it's also equally important to show work that's being created a block away. Um, So for me, I think it's really important to show both. Um, But I definitely... With a toddler at home, I don't get out to First Fridays or First Thursday third Thursdays as much as I want to anymore. And that part is rough. So I'm hoping I can rectify that situation slowly but surely. But I am always looking at artists' websites. I try to go to as many studio visits as I can possibly fit in per year. Um, I like to go to twenty one C, I like to go to the Nash or I like to go to the Ackland. I wanna see what's going on. And um, I try to do as much as I can, and I sign up on everybody's mailing lists. And <laughs> I always tell people, send me anything physical mail because I always look through that too. I just try to keep right. try to keep up as much as I can. I rem- it's hard.
0: I remember when uh, my kids are a little bit older, seven and nine, but there was definitely uh, a few years in there where I <laughs> don't know that I saw anything out, outside of my own house.
1: It's true. It's the really, struggle is real, but it is. So, but it's worth it. You know, it's still oh yeah. um it's worth it to have this time at home with my son, but then once I get out, it's worth it to go out there and see what's being created because it always is changing and I feel like I don't want to miss something great because there's so much great especially going on in the triangle. This is such an amazing creative place to be it is
0: it's really cool
1: very cool i had a friend who was just in from out of town shout out to carolyn (laughs) Uh, she used to live here in chapel hill and um she was just saying that she hadn't been back to the triangle in a few years about three years and just coming back in over this past weekend she said it's amazing how much is happening and all the great art that is going on right now
0: there is so much that's that's part of the reason i convinced warren to do this Another thing that that always interests artists and the general public, I think, is is museum acquisitions. Yes. How things get to live in a museum collection. Are you involved in that?
1: I am. Um, It is for sure a process. That's the first thing I always tell everybody is it's a really interesting process. What happens first is that... um, and it's different based on if it's a gift or a donation or if you're buying something it's a little bit of a different process but basically once one curator in the curatorial department determines that they think something would be a good fit and we do have very strict guidelines we actually have a document that's i can't even tell you how many pages 40 50 pages that lays out what we're looking for what we have what we should have what we don't have um And once we find something that we think fits those guidelines, we then sit down with all the other curators, and we all have to have a discussion. And everybody chips in and says, I like it. I don't like it. I think this works. Why not? Why? Um, And so it actually is a a big discussion. From there, after, so say everybody agrees, everybody wants to have this work in the collection. From there, it then has to go to the senior staff, especially our director. Mm -hmm. He has to say that he thinks it's a good fit and that he wants it in the collection. And then from there, it goes to our board. So it's this jumping process from uh, curator to group of curators to board or director to board. And everybody has to agree. It's hard.
0: So you don't just have a checkbook to, that you can go Oh, and-
1: <laughs> I wish. That's my dream because that's the hard thing, um, especially going to like the big art fairs in, in Miami and New York. You see things that you love and you see things that you know would be good or it's something like um, an artist you've been looking at for a few years and you think now is the time to buy But we can't move that quickly it's a long process and for us it usually takes a number of months we only meet with our board members a couple times a year four times actually um so if it you know say that we just met with the board well we're not going to meet with them again for another three months so works from shows even here locally can sell out faster than you can actually get that money to an artist so it's hard yeah
0: So your podcast is called Art Curious. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. um, So basically my tagline, if I have one, is that it's the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. Mm -hmm. And um, the reason I came up with that was because I... Don't know if this happens to you, but all my life I've heard people say, oh, art, it's so boring. (laughs) And I think that is so not true. And so this was my little way of saying, look at this painting or this photograph or this sculpture that you think is just static and unmoving and actually has a really weird or interesting backstory. So that was kind of why I came up with the idea of doing this show.
0: Was that the idea, and then you made the podcast, or were you interested in making a podcast, and then you uh, came to that idea? How how did that kind of happen?
1: That's a really good question. I think it was a little bit roundabout, and part of that was because earlier this year, I happened to be going on a business trip, and I was going to Paris. And so I had that moment of thinking, oh, well, that'll be fun. I'll get to go to the Louvre, and I get to see the Mona Lisa. I haven't been to the Louvre and over a decade that'll yeah. be fun and the one thing that always stuck in my mind was that one of my professors in college was completely adamant about saying that she thought the Mona Lisa on view was completely fake Right. and I thought that is such a weird thing to say <laughs> and this like she's so educated super smart totally brilliant and I just thought that seems like a little weird conspiracy theory I didn't expect it. And then I just started thinking, that's such an interesting story. Why don't I explore that? And I just happened to love podcasts. And I thought that seemed like a good medium to explore those kind of stories. Right. And it just went from there.
0: It's really cool. You deal with a lot of different... art and time periods I know the most recent one uh, that I heard well before the most recent one was about the amber room yeah in Russia and then the most recent one is about um, Abex artists some of these things I've heard before I mean obviously I know that the amber room it's been missing yeah I'd heard about the Jack the Ripper um, Sickert uh, connection but like I had never heard of the CIA being involved with abstract expressionism
1: that uh, was totally new to me too so you were not alone <laughs> so how do
0: you find these stories
1: I do a lot of research sure. and I keep a file basically you know all on Google Docs and everything so I'm constantly reading and looking and the good thing about the museum working there is that we have this fantastic art library that's at my disposal right. so I'm in there all the time just looking through the stats trying to get inspiration i look in periodicals i do a lot of online searches i'm just looking all the time
0: and and so yeah it's interesting you've got some things that are sort of conspiracy Mm -hmm. that you kind of um disprove perhaps by the end of it and then other things that are um that are legit, like the Abstract Expressionists. So it's it's kind of a balance between uh, what could be possible and what actually happened. That is, is fairly shocking. Yeah. As I said, I was familiar with the Jack the Ripper. Um, I've I've always sort of been interested in that. And at the same time, I remember when they uh, when the the person said, "Hey, this artist is Jack the Ripper," and I thought that's the craziest thing ever. Yeah. Uh, but it's really fun to kind of see those connections.
1: Definitely. I think it's really interesting. Um, It's true in everything, but I feel like in visual art, people really literally want to see what they want to see. And so I think a lot of these topics that I discuss in the Jack the Ripper one is definitely in that vein where even if you say probably this isn't true and I have some evidence that hopefully back that up. People don't want to listen necessarily, and they say, "No, I think he's is because it's more fun to believe sometimes. It just makes a more interesting story,
0: right?" As you can tell, we're um, not highly organized here, isn't that right, Warren?
1: That's right. (laughs) But with your podcast, I think.
0: (laughs) But with your podcast, you know, it is. uh, i think it's scripted you know you're you're figuring this out it's it's this uh sort of arc a story uh that happens how does that process work for you i mean is it uh, i'm I'm guessing it is scripted right it is
1: totally scripted um yeah i think that's because i wanted to come into it in a storytelling element and frankly i'm a better writer than i am a speaker (laughs) overall and so as a curator and also as an art history student i'm so used to having written you're always writing reports you're always writing talks you're always writing wall labels and so for me it just felt like a natural thing to kind of script it out um so sometimes I just I really read a lot and look up as much information as I can beforehand and then I just go but I'm not a natural writer is the weird thing it takes me quite a bit of time to actually write an episode so it's a long process for sure as you guys know, it is. <laughs> podcasting. It, this
0: is, uh, I mean, we we love doing this, and but it has definitely been a learning experience. The amount uh, involved in putting an episode out totally. is, uh, is pretty, it's a lot of work. I get it. So speaking to that, how, how did you learn to do all of those things?
1: Oh, trial by fire. And I was literally just having this conversation with my husband earlier. I was saying, oh, if I knew going into it that... I would have to do this or have to do this. Would I have done it differently? I don't know. I kind of went into it blind. I love podcasts. I listen to a lot of podcasts. And I thought, oh, yeah, that sounds great. It can't be too hard. Ha ha. (laughs) Um, So I actually, it's ridiculous. You guys have a wonderful setup here in this studio. Um, I record in my closet because it's the only place that's quiet and somewhat soundproof. Um, So I shut myself in there amongst coats and shirts and that's it and then i edit a little bit on like garage band and audacity and my husband helps and uh that's it
0: oh it sounds beautiful the
1: rest is it's just uh, me trying to make it work as best as i can
0: right and so how frequently you put one out, is it every two weeks?
1: It's every two weeks, although with the new year, I'm thinking maybe, I'm not entirely sure, but maybe I might scale it back to every three weeks. I don't want to, but um, the fact of the matter is that I have a toddler, and uh, life mm-hmm. is crazy with a toddler, and oh, um, yeah. I want a little more time to relax and play with him, as opposed to think thinking, oh gosh, I should get writing that next episode. Right. Um,
0: Do you work on, uh, at least as far as the script, are you working on multiple ones at the same time?
1: I think as far as writing, I am usually only writing one. But then while I'm writing one, I am recording a second and I'm editing a third. Mm
3: -hmm. And
1: I'm planning ahead and trying to think about what I want the next one to be after that. So um, I'm usually only writing one, but I'm constantly juggling the other balls in the air so incredibly organized (laughs) i try i don't know that i succeed but um (laughs) but i try (laughs) it's hard but it is a lot of fun i mean like you said with here it's you love doing it but for sure it's challenging um time consuming right but hopefully worth it i mean i feel like as long as i even get one person listening that's what matters to me. I just want to share the fun stories yeah. because they're they're crazy and weird and art is great and I just want to share the love.
0: Right. I know recently you've done a lot of traveling and some of that has um, transitioned into the podcast. Mm-hmm. I am extraordinarily jealous of you going to Russia. Um, <laughs> I used to read a lot of the, the the classic sort of Russian literature and I've always... wanted to go there. How was that?
1: It was fantastic. Um, I love to travel. It's something that I like to do on my own and also with my family. And it's one of probably my biggest passions in life besides art, besides the people who I care about. And uh, I feel very lucky that I got to go. Um, I went by myself, which was fun um, in its own way, just being able to devote an entire day to going to the Hermitage, for example, without having to worry about my husband saying, my feet are sore, or I would like <laughs> to have a snack now, which is right. totally understandable. Um, but it was really great. Uh, there, I have to say, there's only maybe a handful of places that I've ever been where I've immediately fallen in love. And St. Petersburg was definitely that same way, where while I was there, I was already scheming, how can I get back here? Right. It was Amazing.
0: And you did some live recording there. A little
1: uh, bit. Yeah. Yeah, um, because I had already thought that I wanted to do this episode on the Amber Room. And then I, once I booked the ticket to Russia, I thought, well, this is a perfect opportunity to try something a little new mm-hmm. um, and kind of do for what it's worth on-site reporting. Yeah. Um, and mostly I just wanted it to be kind of atmospheric. I wanted to have some sounds of church bells as I was walking by or right. the sound of um, a Performer playing the flute in a park, mm-hmm. that kind of thing.
0: Right. Um, so you also traveled to another place.
1: I went actually. Um, so in September of 2016, I went to St. Petersburg. And then in October, I went to Cuba.
0: Oh, that's right. And Cuba. in
1: November, I went to Bulgaria.
0: <laughs> that You're spanning the globe.
1: I am. I'm tired. I'm happy to be in one place for a while. <laughs> right. But it was fantastic i mean i never I should never complain about traveling because it's it's all a wonderful t- experience and um eye opening and it's always fun to go and see art in new places too to be sure
0: what were you what have, were you sort of surprised about most at one of those locations?
1: Oh gosh, that's a great question um totally off subject. I was surprised though I shouldn't be about how tall all the women are in Russia. <laughs> <laughs> For some reason, I was walking around going, everybody's so tall. Why? Amazing. It was kind of bizarre. Um, in terms of art, um, the uh, the art that I saw in Cuba was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, it was very dynamic. Lots of very young artists. And the thing that I thought was very interesting was a lot of people were saying that artists in Cuba in general um, – they end up having a higher quality of living than doctors or lawyers just because the ability to show their work and to make profits outside of the country is so vast as compared to doctors who are simply working in Havana, for example. Right. Um, and so being an artist in Cuba is actually very sought after, a very highly prized, I suppose I should say, right. career. Um, and I thought that was totally fascinating and also pretty cool.
0: Yeah, that is pretty neat. Mm-hmm. Can we make that happen here? Yes, please. I would like, <laughs> I would like that a lot.
1: <laughs> I know. i been mean, thinking about how here. I mean, it's the arts are always the first thing to get cut. Oh yeah. And it's horrible, and I hate it, and that's something that really boils my blood every time I think about it. And to so to be in a country where it's something that's so Cherished and not only visual arts but dance and music, they're such integral parts of their culture. I just wish that could be such a huge priority here as well. That, I would, mean, that
0: would be awesome,
1: be really cool.
0: <laughs> so, tell us where we could find out about your podcast.
1: You can find everything at our website, which is www.artcuriouspodcast.com.
0: Thank you, Jennifer.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Thank you guys so much for having me. This is a lot of fun.
0: Coming up next, we talk with Brad Johnson real kitty kitty litter is the first and only all-in-one pet kit are you tired of having to make two trips to rescue a new cat we thought so first you have to drive all the way to the shelter and then off to the pet store to hell with that real kitty kitty litter comes with a free kitten in every box you're welcome hurry now while supplies last seriously hurry real kitty kitty litter meow hey everybody it's time to get off your ass and go look at some art and here's some of the things you might want to check out harriet hoover she's got a show at waterworks visual arts center that's in salisbury north carolina that show is from February 11th to May 20th and it's called Mama Space and Again Drawings and Sculpture. Check out Waterworks website at waterworks.org. Heather Gordon who was featured in our third episode has a new incredible installation in the basement gallery at 21C Durham that's called Echo. Uh, also, a part of that is a performance piece by Justin Turnow, who is a local choreographer and dancer. She reacts to Heather's work in an incredible video. So, go check that out. We're here with Beverly McKeever, and I wanted to ask you about one of your former students, Lamar Whidbey. Um, I have been lucky enough to have been asked to curate the UNC MFA show this year, and he is one of those graduating MFA students and one of your former students. So can you talk a little bit about
3: Lamar? Oh, absolutely. Lamar, when he first came to my class, he was at Central on a football scholarship. hmm And he said, you know, after, because he was really getting into painting, and he's one of the few students that I know that was really trusting his intuition right off the bat. You know, he was just like, I I was like, what is that? Where is that going? He was like, I don't know. It just came out. I was like, oh, good. Let (laughs) it keep coming out. So then he started spending more time painting than he was practicing football. And he came to me and he said, The coach said that I spent too much time painting and that I had to choose between painting and football. And so I was like, oh, geez, oh, my God, this is a scholarship, you know. And I was like, so what did you tell him? And he said, I chose painting. Wow. And I was so thrilled. I didn't want to, like, overreact. (laughs) Like, Oh, my God, you made the right decision. This is great. But, uh, you know, I'm just... I feel so blessed that I had the opportunity to mentor him and work with him. I actually witnessed him fall in love with this act of painting, Mm -hmm. um, which is just fabulous for me. And he just continues to get better and better and better as a painter. So. I'm very, very thrilled for him. He was one of four students that I took to New York the year I had the Marie Wall Sharp studio space. Mm -hmm. And we were staying in, you know, I was living in New York. But I flew back to North Carolina and took four or five students, my best painting students with me to New York. And he was one of them. And the other guy, Raheem, who is uh, at SCAD getting his master's degree in painting. That's awesome. It was so magical and so perfect. And just one of those things that was just incredibly memorable to me to show them New York and show them the art world. And we went to my gallery dealer, Betty Cunningham, and, you know, she talked about my art to them. And it's just fabulous. It was wonderful. It was one of the things that I'll remember all of my life. So I just think it impacted him in a really really positive way and it's made him a great painter today
0: and it's really funny that you talk about um, him having that sort of intuition and relying on it because yeah. when i talk to him i still get that sense you know he's he still sort of feels things like a direction or, or an approach right. and he goes with that and it's so hard for other artists if you're talking to them or for myself to just say I'm going to do this. I feel like it should happen. And so when people innately have that, I'm always a little bit in awe.
3: Me too. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you.
0: Okay, so uh, go down and check out Lamar's work and the other UNC MFA graduate students at the Ackland Art Museum. Recently, we were lucky enough to talk to Brad Johnson. He's the exhibition designer at the Nasher Museum of Art. What is the first step? when you start to think about a show?
2: Well, of course, the curator is the one who develops the checklist. And and I work primarily from the checklist. And so as soon as I have the option to look at the checklist, I will to get an idea of the size of the show, how many pieces are going to be sculpture, how many videos we have, just to have a rough idea of how involved the show is going to be. After that point, I work very collaboratively with the curator, and that can vary. I mean, it's always a collaborative effort, but sometimes uh, one curator will want to have more of a hand in it than another. Right. And so it, it really doesn't matter to me. The, the goal, I think, is the same for the curator and for myself. You want the show to look the best.
0: Right. Right. And so, obviously, at the Nasher, you have these large boxes that can be shaped and changed in a lot of different ways. And I'm sure over time, as I said, you've been there for 10 years. It seems like you've gotten more and more of an understanding of the space and the capabilities and how to uh, approach shows. Is, I guess I'm, uh, I'd like to know how you've got this... X number of works, paintings or, or 2D works and sculpture and video, how do you start the sort of layout? Is Do you start with a certain thing or do you just sort of get a general idea of the space?
2: Normally, we reconfigure all the walls within the outer four walls. If there works on paper, a large consideration is that we have to block off the front of the entrance, which is too bad. But we have to do that. I mean, right. we, we've got to keep the light levels down for a lot of shows. Um, for example, the Calder show, which had no works on paper, we were able to open those galleries up, which is very nice because you could see in from the, the lobby or the great hall into the galleries. But most shows aren't like that. Most shows, we may have a leading piece of art, which when you look at the checklist, it often will sort of jump out at you that, well, this piece stands alone, It's a great piece. We'll just put it at the front. Sometimes we'll just use graphics at the front. If the show needs to be contained within the walls, instead of having a primary piece in the front, working with the walls, we can do almost anything. If there's a video room, of course, that's going to be an area that's contained within the space. So I'll often just have a block and move it around. I'll, I'll use a CAD program, ArchiCAD, and just work in a 2D model and work with the objects. Uh, the curator often knows some of the objects they want to put together. There may be other objects they haven't really thought about. And that's where I can sort of push the curator in a direction and see if that works. And so it's a little back and forth at that time of maybe these pieces would be nice together.
0: So thinking about one one uh, object or one work working against uh, or with another object.
2: Right, and it's still a lot of guesswork because even if you know what the object looks like, until it's in the space with another object, you really don't have the full effect. I mean, it, you can think it's going to be a good fit, and then when you bring the, the pieces to the gallery, it just doesn't work. And that's when you have to be flexible, which... The curators are very flexible, and I am too, because if you can accept that that's what's going to happen, then, you know, you, you're not really disappointed that these didn't work. You just say, well, they don't work. It's it's a, it's more or less a visual fact when you get to the space.
0: Right. So you mentioned the Calder show before. That's uh, There were a lot of works hanging from the ceiling, and that's a different sort of way of thinking, isn't it, or is it not, when you're trying to lay out? a show like that. I mean, there's obviously the physical nature of figuring out how these things are going to hang from the ceiling, but there's also, um, they just operate in a little bit of a different way than a standard sculpture or a 2d work. Can you talk a little bit about how you approach that show? If it was different from another kind of show?
2: One, um, nice thing that we often have the opportunity to see a show in another venue And this show had been installed at the MCA in Chicago, which I only saw images there, but it also was installed at the Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas. And so Sarah and I flew to Dallas to have a look at it there and seeing the pieces installed somewhere else is huge. And I think in this case, it would have been much more difficult to have designed the layout of the show without seeing the pieces because you instantly see the pieces you feel are very strong, the ones that may need support from other pieces. And so my approach is to work from the strongest pieces visually and place those and then work toward the pieces that may need some other support. It doesn't mean they're lesser pieces or lesser value. It just means that visually they aren't as strong in our space. Mm -hmm. I mean, our space is enormous, right? So it's, you know, from a distance, you want to see something that brings you in. So that's the way I tend to work, from the strongest pieces to the ones that you might want to be closer to, to see.
0: And so you're talking about Sarah Schroth, who is now the director at the Nasher. At that time, she was the chief curator, I believe.
2: That's correct. And, and Sarah actually came from the Ackland as well.
0: Right. And so you came over, I think, in the year 2000 to Duke. And then uh, at that time, we were in the old space, which was quite different. Of course, after a while, we moved to the new space, the current Nasher Museum. At that time, I was the registrar over there. I'm sort of amazed over time, or, or maybe it's a natural thing, how things have changed as far as exhibitions. It feels like over time, you begin to learn that space right I mean what sort of ways of thinking do you see that have changed since you first moved into that space you were you were laying out those first shows before we even were in the building and versus getting to kind of know how a space operates
2: right that and and I feel like if we did the shows today that we did then we would do them in a totally different way
0: I think about all of these different shows like Calder and then I think about some of the more recent shows where you're working with very contemporary work, and then you have shows like the one Sarah did, the Philip III show, where you're dealing with sometimes huge old master paintings, of Velasquez and El Greco, and I think there may have been a Goya in there. You're talking about some significant artists, and in some cases, some very large, very um, fragile works. Is it different to work with those things or do you kind of approach what you do in the same way like the like the show you got now do you see how you operate with those works as any different or is it, is it all kind of start from the same place
2: well i think that at least my approach is to treat all the artwork as invaluable it's irreplaceable right I don't know that I'm going to feel uh, any worse if I damage an older, more valuable piece than <laughs> right. if I, I damage something that's contemporary. Uh, the point is not to damage any of it and to handle it, because it, it, you really can't replace it. Right. These objects are one of a kind. Someone's created them, and I think that, for me, that's the, the having the reverence for each object the same. It doesn't matter to me whether the object is $10 million or $10,000. I'm going to handle it the same.
0: Right. Is there a sort of a favorite show of yours that you've done?
2: I really think the Calder show looked great because we had never done anything like that. And I don't know that we ever will. To have a show of mostly hanging mobiles uh, was fantastic. And I really loved the way it looked. And it... It was open. We didn't have to put a light block in, so it was open to the lobby. At the moment, I would, I would have to say I think that might be my favorite.
0: So we've talked a fair amount about exhibit design, how you approach work there, but then there's all the sort of things behind the scenes that goes into uh, working at a museum, dealing with uh, collections and storage and, and shipping of work in and out. Is there any sort of particular story that you think about when you think about sort of behind the scenes? You've got to... You've got a pretty interesting crew of Patrick and Alan, who are great guys, and they sort of specialize in their own things, but it's a pretty good group. Can you talk about sort of maybe some situations you've had behind the scenes that people would find interesting?
2: First of all, most of it is all behind the scenes. I mean, the, we've really talked about the the more fun parts of the job, which are designing a layout and actually installing. Is great deal of fun but there's so much time spent behind the scenes the artwork comes in and of course all of it has to be unpacked with care finding out how each piece is packed it's recorded the registrar has to look at each object and record if there have been any damages mostly changes is what they're looking for so a lot of times quite a number of objects need to be framed so they need the, the objects need to be matted. They need to be hinged, they need to be framed. they need to have glazing put on in front of them. They need to have hardware, uh, sometimes security hardware. These are things that go on in the back not only by Patrick Allen and myself, but we also bring in a crew. Andrew. Warren has helped us. Uh, you helped us before you landed your fantastic job that you have now, mm-hmm. and um, Bryce Lankard. Peter on helps. He's more in the behind-the-scenes than even they are because he doesn't help us necessarily with the installs as much as he does with the photography and with matting and framing and hinging. Uh, Tom Mole, my first boss, mm-hmm. is actually back in the area, and he's been helping us a great deal. Right. So I'm trying to think of funny things that happen. I I don't want to make it sound like there's a lot of horseplay, but there is a lot of horseplay. But it's usually, it's not with any of the objects. I mean, you know, you need to laugh when you're not being serious so that you can maintain a level of not being tense because you don't want to be handling an object and be, be uptight about it. You want to be relaxed but at the same time, when you're handling that object, that's all you're doing, right. and the other person on the other end, that's what they're doing. So, there, I don't have a lot of good stories about object handling that are that are funny. But <laughs> um, when we moved the collection from Duma to the Nasher, and you and I were in charge of this move, as seems like to me, right? <laughs> seems like to me. <laughs> So we had the idea we were going to pack the entire collection, and then we would move it over a two-week period of time. I think we were trying to fit this all in the schedule. The museum had closed early. I think we took some months to pack it. That's when Harvey Craig used to work with us, Mm -hmm. and Alan and Harvey did the majority of the packing. And then a lot of the objects were just going to be packed on the truck as were needed. Uh, The larger pieces, we didn't feel a need to crate them since they were only going a half a mile, maybe three-quarters of a mile. And we hired, was it Allied Van Lines? I think so. I'm not sure how we hired them, but um, <laughs> we, there was an older gentleman. And, of course, he knew about moving objects, but he didn't know about moving artwork. Right. And so it was, it was us trying to work with him, and I think we gave him the nickname of Cowboy Bob, and I don't know <laughs> if that's because he wore boots or had long yeah. sideburns. And he had a helper with him. He didn't have much of a clue, but his name was Tumbleweed. (laughs) And between the two of them, and I think we had maybe five or six of us doing the move, we moved the entire collection in in two weeks from one museum to another, which was pretty amazing at the time.
0: Yeah, I I remember uh, Cowboy Bob and and Tumbleweed as being... uh... They would have been tremendous character actors back in the day. Both of them very different. But I remember at one point, um, we had created these nicknames for them amongst ourselves. And at some point, I was talking to Tumbleweed, and I asked him where Cowboy Bob was, (laughs) as if (laughs) that was his actual name. And he didn't seem to know what I was talking about. Yeah, I
2: do not even think his name was Bob. (laughs) I think Bob went with Cowboy, but... uh, (laughs)
0: yeah that was a a tremendous experience I think we we ended up moving you know nearly ten thousand things if if that's uh even possible uh, over to the new building into storage so that was um an, for me an incredible experience it's one of those things I know you were involved when when they redid the ackland but it's a very rare Thing to have experience of moving to a new building to go through all of the sort of challenges and things involved with that—it's pretty extraordinary, but pretty amazing at the same time.
2: Yeah, it was—it was very exciting to to finally get to the new building. There's not a comparison in my mind between the old facility that Duma was in and the the Nasher now. The, right. the building is tremendous to have a building designed by an architect as a museum instead of a converted classroom is is night and day
0: right just the level of exhibitions and the things that that are now going on that the number of staff persons the professionalism and and it's just an amazingly different setting now i'm just always uh sort of blown away by the exhibitions i think uh certainly part of that's due to trevor trevor schoonmaker when he was hired on really uh an amazing um vision and understanding of contemporary art and collecting and curating and the level of shows has just been pretty exceptional.
2: I would like to say it, it has been it's wonderful working with Trevor who was the after Sarah he was the first curator hired at the Nasher. Since then we've uh, added Marshall Price and both of them are really wonderful to work with and sure. are great great people to work with. I mean that it makes all the difference in the world to work with someone who not only will they explain what their plan is or what they're thinking, but they will listen to you if you have an idea. And they, and it goes for anybody on the staff. I mean, I, I think everyone is open to hearing others' ideas because you don't know where the next good idea is going to come from. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't reside all in one place.
0: And you're frequently working with art from a, living artists which is a different thing you you can um, work with them on specific works and ideas and in, in certain cases which is a very different thing than just a sort of object that has been around for a long time and you don't have the input of that person that's created it
2: it reminds me that when we did install the nasher at the very beginning we did have a little run-in with a living artist if you remember this uh we had gotten a piece early on and it was this is a contemporary piece and i'm not going to mention the 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 piece or the the artist but the the object was too large in the crate to make it up in our elevator and our elevator is huge anyway it's about 10 by 12 feet and one end of the crate we figured out if one end of the crate would come off the object would fit into the elevator which was no big deal so we proceeded to take the end of the crate off and put the object in and take it up and then move it into our pavilion, waiting for the rest of the objects to arrive so that the entire show could be installed. Well, the artist was going to arrive later, and when they did and they saw that the end of the crate had been taken off, they absolutely completely lost it not even asking for an explanation at all, just the fact that they were not informed of it. And really, the, I was completely flabbergasted. The, the the person just completely lost it, uh, you know, yelled at me.
0: I thought, it, I thought the person yelled primarily at me. I, <laughs> I'm trying to remember this, uh, but I feel like I got the largest brunt of this uh, <laughs> explosion. But it was a... Um, it was a little bit of a lesson for me. I mean, I had certainly been in the museum world for a little while by then, but the the level of reaction was extraordinary and, in, in my opinion, unfounded. But when you work in a museum, you have to be prepared to deal with a lot of different people that are really in a lot of different capacities. You're, you're dealing with curators, you're dealing with directors, you're dealing with artists, you're dealing with designers. A lot of people have their own opinions and... Sometimes it's a balancing act, but yes, I remember that uh, somewhat non-fondly.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, was, I thought you were going to say you, you learned never to listen to me again. Because <laughs> well, no. I think I was the one who said to take the end of the crate
0: off. Well, you were, but I wasn't going to throw you under the bus. <laughs> the The work was perfectly safe the way we transported it. Um, I think that the artist may not have understood that. I'll just leave it at that.
2: Mm. <laughs> I think you actually got an apology out of the whole thing. I don't think I ever heard anything.
0: I, I never got an apology. No. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) but yeah that was a an interesting experience that was one of our first shows in the new building and that was a a, an incredible time you think about um changing out shows like right now y'all are changing out you've got three primary pavilions you've got work outside you got work in the great hall right now you're about to change out two of the pavilions but when you when you open a a new building you're installing you're Planning and curating and designing and installing all three of those pavilions work in the Great Hall. We had a work outside. We had a, an amazing work by Patrick Doherty at one of the entrances. So
2: it was amazing.
0: Just the amount of work that goes on at the time of opening a new building is just so vast I mean it's just an incredible thing I mean it seems like sort of all you can do to change out one show at a time but to totally open a new building is just uh it's just an incredible thing I think we worked a lot of it was a lot of days in a row
2: I think that was it was not a really a happy time toward the end because it was so much work it was fairly tense everybody had a stake involved and there was a I mean, in the end, everything worked great. But, I mean, you, in hindsight, you look back and you do see how hard you work. I think we worked till 9 or 11 o'clock uh, leading up to the space. where Everything was new. Mm-hmm. Labels for all the pieces. You, you're developing techniques that you'd never done before. It's all, so much of it are educated guesses until you're actually doing the installations. We were working with different curators, we were working with an outside curator, as well as uh, Sarah Schroth. We had a relatively new director, Kim Rorschach, who this was her baby as well. Mm -hmm. Of course, our benefactor, Ray Nasher, was a large part of it, and so there were a lot of stakeholders involved. And I guess it's amazing that more people didn't lose their cool like
0: that one artist, <laughs> right? No, it, it it it's true. I mean, we, were, everyone's involved in in at least some aspect of a lot of different things, and and to come all together, and it's one of those things that you, you've got a deadline, you've got an opening, and uh, it seems like in that kind of situation, you get done right at that point.
2: Yeah, I, th- I think it was right at that point. I think <laughs> that, the way it felt. We were the doors were opening and. We were putting up labels. Mm-hmm.
0: But like I said, a really, for me, a, a really rewarding thing because it's not something that you're likely to do very often if you even get a chance to do it once. And the building, as you said, going from the old space to the new, it's such a transition. I mean, even the an object you saw many times in the old space really became a totally different thing in the new space to see it in a legitimate gallery space it just changes things so much i mean you're really able to kind of appreciate what maybe before you didn't pay enough attention to
2: it, it's true the the surroundings affect the artwork and i think when you make the surroundings pleasant it gives you the opportunity to experience the artwork the way it, it should be and, and that can be in someone's home or it could be in a nice gallery but it wasn't necessarily in the old duke university museum of <laughs> right. art right Um, but it is now so, but, but speaking of opening, uh, new buildings, you've had the opportunity to open another building as well. So with your, your position at 21C, and I hadn't even thought about that till we're just discussing it now. So for you, you, you had the other, another opportunity. So now you've done that twice.
0: It's pretty neat to have gone through that again. I think I relied a lot on just thinking back about when we did it originally and the bigger picture that when you're doing so much at once, you know that even little things like you said before, like an object may not work next to another object. You always have to be flexible about adjusting shows, but just that there's a lot of logistics and the ability to kind of stay level-headed and look at the big picture, I think, was important and learned. I learned a lot from that initial experience at the Nasher. And then um, we've recently opened in a couple other cities and I was able to go down and help with the installations at Oklahoma city. Uh, So that's there. Ever evolving and opening new buildings, which is really so. so you'll cool. be
2: a part of all these. Probably. I don't know
0: if, if I'll be a part of all of them, but I at least on a periphery get to hear about it and, and kind of see it happen. And so it's it's exciting to kind of see it uh constantly e- expand. So before when you were talking about the Calder show, the ability to see that work in other spaces, how difficult is it to look at work in other museums without being overly critical, or is that even possible for you?
2: I guess I'm always being critical because I'm going to compare it to what we do at The Nasher. But it also means I can see things that are done very well. Mm -hmm. And I'll see a show that, of course, we have nothing to do with and we're not going to get. And I can appreciate the fact that it was done really well. The shows that you put on at Twenty One C are amazing. I mean, the art is amazing, the installations are amazing, and I have absolutely nothing to do with that. As an example, it is a lot of fun to see a show that we're going to get because it's very easy to see what didn't work. Right, and it's not to be critical of what they did because everybody is working blind to some extent sure. um, when you're doing an installation, but to to see pieces that were highlighted but didn't necessarily feel like they were a highlight piece Mm -hmm. and maybe they were for historical reasons or maybe you know this was special to the curator i i don't know but i just know when i see it i just can say to myself that i don't think this will work for us
0: right it is difficult you know you do look at a lot of the details when you go to look at other work like you said regardless of if it's work that's going to be you're going to be dealing with hands on and you see a lot of decisions made that are um, that you're surprised by in a good way or and sometimes you'll see uh, I know a lot of people are big into painting walls a certain color and that can get fairly tragic fairly quickly if in the wrong hands but it can also be something that can be really well done and so I'm always kind of interested in how people make those decisions uh, because as I said, it can really highlight things. It can really create an environment, or it can really be a distraction.
2: It's true. I think, and I think it's extremely difficult to do color, especially to do any kind of color in a contemporary show, where there are often lots of competing elements involved. And we normally show contemporary art on basically white walls, which I think works very effectively. And I do think that color works better with more period pieces. It, it tends to, as long as you can make it blend and go away. If mm-hmm. if you're walking into in the space and the first thing you notice is the wall color, I don't think that that's a <laughs> successful uh, installation. Right. So we do use color from on occasion, but try. I, I hope it's not the first thing anyone notices.
0: So if you were to walk in a in a museum that sort of had just about anything, antique pieces, you know, old masterworks, contemporary works, what, what would you initially be drawn to? What kind of thing do you think you would seek out first?
2: I really enjoy just working in survey collections, which I've done for nearly 40 years, I hate to say. If it's a well-done, well-made, beautiful piece of art, it doesn't matter to me whether it's a sculpture or a... a a piece of ancient pottery or a painting. I mean, I do love contemporary art, but that's because it's happening right now, just like I'm gonna probably appreciate a contemporary song better than I am, you know, something done um, in the Middle Ages. Right. Um, But I I think I enjoy art of of all types. I enjoy the the museum's collection, and, and I find installing it is always a challenge, and it doesn't matter what it is.
0: I'm always sort of uh, both Warren and I. You know, we have experience in museums and in other areas, but at the same time, we're visual artists. We've we're interested in art and we make things. And I'm always sort of fascinated when people become interested in visual arts in other ways, but don't make work. And I think of you as uh, uh, the way you think is so much like an artist. You think in this space, these spatial ways. Your understanding of space and color and all these sorts of things. Have you ever Uh, considered making work or is that never been uh, an interest of yours?
2: I've never seriously considered it. I mean, it crosses my mind from time to time because I'm working around art all the time and I appreciate others art, especially having friends who are artists and I see what they can do and what, you know, what they're able to make. And when I appreciate it, I, I sometimes would like to do that, but I consider it, artist to be an artist it's almost a calling i mean like it's like you're pulled toward it to do and you're actually making an object you're making something that's that you're deliberate you're doing this piece and it doesn't matter whether it's photography or sculpture or painting you're making an individual piece that you're you're taking it at this present time you're creating it and at some point you're going to stop and be done with it um And I'm amazed at that because, I mean, the process that you go through is sort of a continuous process where the work I do is a start-stop process. I get up in the morning, I go in, and I may work all day, and I may think about it at night. But as an artist, I think it's a 24-7, to me, way of of living and thinking about art. Right. And so I would say that's a big difference between us.
0: Maybe it's a... um a wish of mine, but I've always, you know, like I said, I think of the way you think is, is so in line with art, with the way artists think, and I've always would love to see something that you would make, how your uh, mind and, and abilities would process making something. But maybe that's just selfish. So I know uh, back in the olden days of the Duke University Museum of Art in the basement, we had a um, a dartboard. And over time, I got to the point where I beat you rather handily several times, and then you were all of a sudden not interested in playing. Uh, but I also know that uh, maybe I'm misremembering that. I don't know, <laughs> but I know that before that time, when you were at the Ackland, I've heard uh, various stories of games playing. Can you talk about that?
2: Yes, when when I began uh, work at the at the Ackland, which was around 1976. This is pre-revolution. <laughs> um, at the time, they had a dartboard, which was utilized quite a bit. <laughs> we also had a putt-putt course in the basement. And we used a roll of, uh, we would take masking tape and make a ball out of it. So you could get some weird spins on that. We made our own clubs, and there was a drain at one end of the hall. I think that might have been the par three. <laughs> But there were a few different holes and we might, you know, we may, we might play for 30, 45 minutes, maybe three four hours. I'm not, I, I'm not really sure. So we had that for a while. We had a ping pong table after the art department moved out. They didn't have the money right away to convert the vacated spaces. So we had several large spaces that were completely empty. And of course they weren't even suitable for storage and except for storing a ping pong table (laughs) that we had for a while so we had uh ping pong for a while at one time we had a video game i think we finally beat every level on that it was rescuing the hostages (laughs) and they eventually the hostages were on the moon and you had to rescue them from there that sounds
0: almost impossible that isn't like that Ross Perot bullshit on the moon. Oh uh, yeah I mean, uh,
2: this is maybe a combination of like Moonraker and and uh, some Sylvester Stallone episode. But
0: and and how did how did you do personally on the old golf course? I know you can be a little bit, um, uh, how should I put it? You're you're a little bit aggressive with the gamesmanship. You like to win, don't you?
2: Oh, I do like to win <laughs> almost as much as you do. I think, Jeff. <laughs> I did fairly well. I don't think anybody ever dominated anything. I think everybody would take turns, although I don't know that anybody could beat Kirby in, in um, ping pong, honestly. Oh, that
0: was Kirby's game, was that it? That
2: was Kirby's game, as well as uh, racquetball. Mm. Uh, it was pretty tough to beat Kirby on the racquetball court.
0: I don't know how widely known this is, but I know that there was a period of time that when the old uh – and the old seasons were changing and it got around to Christmas time someone was the old Ackland Santa Claus and who was that
2: I was I was Santa I was it wasn't <laughs> the largest santa ever um but I you know i I think i I, I did okay I, I had many requests for Santa I'm not sure how many years Santa made an appearance but uh it was a bit of a get up
0: my um <laughs> Uh, And this is also related to Christmas, but one of my favorite things is you had a dog, and what was your dog's name? Willie. And um, you did these incredible Christmas cards. I've always wanted you to scan those so that other people could see them, Uh, but you began to pose Willie and take these incredible photographs and sent them out as Christmas cards. And how, how did that all start?
2: Gosh, you know, I'm trying to remember how it started. I do remember the first card. We cut some antlers out of a piece of foam core and just put that on his head. And it would always have some little funny saying on the card. And the dog, of course, was the the main part. Although humans were in it sometimes, it it was really (laughs) the dog that was the star. And, And Willie was the kind of dog that would pose there. And you could do anything you wanted. We we dressed Willie up in Christmas lights and just tied lights around him and he just sat right there. He was completely happy. So um, eventually we used the services of Peter Jeffreyon as a photographer and things, <laughs> things got a lot better then because to have a professional photographer take the picture of your dog, I mean, what else can you ask for at that point? So I was able to focus totally on the costuming and And they got
0: fairly elaborate right it
2: did it got fairly elaborate we had him uh stocking shelves uh, one year (laughs) with a little outfit on and uh, he was elvis one year although it was spelled e-l-f-i-s elvis yeah i like that Mm -hmm. oh yeah but (laughs) it was a long collection i think it might have been nine or ten of them very cool
0: i know uh a fair amount about your personal life You're originally from Raleigh.
2: It's true. I was born in Statesville, North Carolina, and my family moved to Raleigh probably before I was two. And so I lived in Raleigh until going to Carolina in 75. So I was there, you know, most of my life.
0: Uh, and we've talked a lot about art and other things, but even more importantly, uh, you worked for a long time in the press box at NC State football I did. games. I
2: did. Those are wonderful. I, I actually worked 17 seasons <laughs> in the press box at NC State, never missing a single home game during that
0: stretch. And uh, t- to tell me some of the, the amazing NC State players that you got to see during that time.
2: I think when I first started, of course, there were the Bucky brothers who oh. were finishing their career. I
0: believe they were on the cover
2: of Sports a, Illustrated as I was beginning my career, <laughs> <laughs> serving hamburgers. <laughs> oh, Lou Holtz coached there, when I, and of course, y- you could beat anybody when you had Lou Holtz coaching you. Right. Of course, he didn't stay long enough long enough to get us a national championship, but it was those were fun times.
0: Right. Uh, Just uh, full disclosure, Brad and I have uh, gone to many an NC State uh, game together, and he makes a delicious whiskey sour (laughs) that cannot be beat. But also, he is a fisherman, I believe. Tell us about that.
2: Most of uh, my friends, uh, I can trace back to museums, and I have met almost everyone uh, that I have as a close friend. there's a couple of exceptions, but... um, when I was working at the Ackland, a uh, person that I hired, um, Mr. Kirby Sewell, uh, who he's he has since retired and and uh, are you
0: are you talking about Captain Kirby?
2: Captain Kirby is uh, he's living in uh, North Durham uh, on a pasture, <laughs> pasteurized farm, I think, with uh, his wife and at least two horses. They may have three by now. I'm not sure, um, but. Kirby was a big fisherman, and I would fish a lot with him. And so he really got me involved, and I caught the bug from him. And and I've been fishing quite a few times with you, Jeff, and I think we've, uh, we've had pretty good success.
0: Oh, I think so. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Brad Johnson, for coming by.
2: Well, you're welcome. It's been a pleasure, and it's always nice to see you, Jeff, and <laughs> to see you, Warren.
1: Are you tired of using those trendy dry erase boards? We thought so. Maybe it's time to reacquaint yourself with chalk. It's not just for outlining dead bodies anymore. You can write words or even sentences. You can draw pie charts or pie equations, even pie recipes. Oh, and you could take it a step further too. You can draw pictures of your freshly baked pies. Chalk. That's right. Chalk. Ever try to draw on a sidewalk with a dry erase marker? It doesn't work. Hey, dry erase markers, it's chalk calling. Eat our dust.
0: Don't You Lie to Me is physically sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c nonprofit creativity incubator. You can find out more about them at vaeraleigh.com. We'd also like to thank Matt McMichaels for the use of his studio, Trusty Woods. Our theme song was written by our own Warren Hicks, and our logo design was created by Artsy Martha. Don't forget to check out our website at don'tyoulietome.com. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe and tell your friends and family to listen as well.